Good evening, everyone. I'm David Elwood. I'm the dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum. Um, I uh, realize this was not your average evening getting in. Uh, that was because uh, Alex Jones had he's increasingly voiced concerns that investigative journalists are under attack and need security. So I looked for really high quality security. The president was never here. This was just a ruse to, to justify the security. Uh, nonetheless, I, I really do we, uh, um, uh, regret very much that uh, we have to close down so much of Cambridge uh, for, this, for the president's brief visit uh, next door. Um, nonetheless, this is always uh, one of the really magical evenings uh, here. And it's magical uh, for a number of different reasons. Um, it's first and foremost a time to celebrate uh, investigative journalism, which um, we always worry next year is going to be the demise. And somehow or other, we always come away even more inspired, more excited, and so forth. And this has been a remarkable year uh, for investigative journalism in so many different ways. And so it's uh, particularly appropriate that we have these Goldsmith Awards here um, to celebrate. We obviously have a terrific um, primary honoree here, which I will leave uh, Alex and others to introduce. Um, but I did want to say a couple of things about um, the Shorenstein Center for Press Politics and Public Policy. It's this, the kind of work that you do, as well as thinking about what the future can bring and how we make sure the kind of work that goes on here, which is absolutely essential to a well-functioning democracy, is preserved and, and uh, is, is flourishes and so forth in a very uncertain environment. Uh, I wanted to pay special thanks to the Shorenstein family, uh, Doug Shorenstein, who very much wanted to be here tonight but was unable to, uh, just been a terrific uh, uh, friend and supporter and inspiring vision. Of course, his father, the late Walter Shorenstein, um, who was a very good friend of the Kennedy School and like all good friends, told us what we could do better all the time. Um, and, uh, and I'll leave Alex to, to talk more about the center and so forth, but the center itself uh, is and remains uh, one of those places that's absolutely essential, I think, to the future, uh, really to making democracy work, uh, because what all, all of you do, or so many of you do, or have done, is critical. Um, I just want to introduce uh, the Lawrence M. Lecture, Lombard Lecturer in Press and Public Policy and the Director of the Shorenstein Center, Alex Jones. Virtually all of you know him. Um, he, was, he covered the press for the New York Times from 1983 to 1992, um, and he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Uh, his most recent book, Losing the News, the, uh, the Future of the News That Feeds Democracy, was published in August 2009. Um, New York Times book review, Sunday book review called Jones, A Bringer of Light in the Encircling Doom. That's pretty good, actually. I think that's pretty nice. Um, he's been the author, along with Susan Tift, of The Patriarch, The Rise and Fall of the Bingham Dynasty, um, Business Week selected as one of the best business books of the year, and so on. So the main thing I just wanted to say is uh, he's someone who reflects and cares about the media, but he's also very much uh, trying and successfully leading the Shorenstein Center in the question of what does the future bring and how do we make sure that this period of transition and um, opportunity, but also great, great challenge, uh, brings us to an even better place. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alex Jones. Thank you all very much. <clears throat> As we were, you know, patting our feet and waiting for the sirens and the motorcade to pass, 
Candy Crowley was telling about uh, yesterday in Washington, uh, where a uh, one of the, because of snow, at least one lane of every road had been shut down. Uh, in the morning, the president decided he was going to go one way, and Bibi Netanyahu, who was also in town, decided he would go the other. And it was the, according to her, and according to all accounts, the worst traffic jam in Washington, D.C. history. <laughs> so think what you missed. <laughs> this is always a very big night for the Shorenstein Center, and David Elwood, thank you very much for, for those good words. Uh, this year marks the 23rd anniversary of the Goldsmith Awards program, and each year we look forward to this as a high point for the Shorenstein Center, and if I may say so immodestly for American journalism. There is, of course, a story behind the Goldsmith Awards. Bob Greenfield, then a Philadelphia lawyer, had a client named Berta Marks Goldsmith who had told him of her intent to leave him, her lawyer, uh, her entire estate. Bob declined to accept it and went searching for a good way to use the money for a purpose that Berta Goldsmith would have approved. She was passionately interested in good government, followed the news ardently, and was particularly outraged by misconduct by people with public responsibility. Eventually, Bob connected with Marvin Kalb, the founding director of the Shorenstein Center, and the result was the Goldsmith Awards in political journalism, which include in the Investigative Reporting Prize, Book Prizes, Fellowships, and a Career Award. In 2012, after an extraordinary life of achievement and many, many contributions to the common good, Bob Greenfield died at 97. We mourn him and miss him, and tonight we honor him. I believe that the creation and support of the Goldsmith Awards was one of Bob's proudest accomplishments, a pride that his family shares. We are joined tonight by several members of the Greenfield family and members of the Greenfield Foundation. Ben Greenfield and Bill Epstein, who represented the Greenfield family in this year's judging. Mike Greenfield, Bill Greenfield, who was chairman of the Greenfield Foundation, and his wife Joni. Jill Greenfield Feldman, president of the foundation, and Barbara and Charles Kahn. Without the Greenfield Foundation's continued support and good faith, this night would not be possible. Please join me in showing our appreciation to the Greenfield family and those associated with the Greenfield Foundation. As David said, I also want to thank the Shorenstein family for its unstinting and generous support of the Shorenstein Center for nearly 30 years. The Shorenstein family has been not only a great benefactor, but has become part of our family, and we are most, most grateful. Our career award winner this year goes to the smart and incisive Candy Crowley of CNN, and we will be hearing from her later. But first, the Goldsmith Prizes. The first Goldsmith Awards are the book prizes, and making those presentations will be my colleague Tom Patterson, the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at the Kennedy School. So I've got to be careful here not to mess up Alex's notes. I think they're... Uh, <coughs> Thank you, Alex. Right. Each year we award two Goldsmith Book Prizes, one for the best academic book in the field of media 
politics and public policy, and one for the best trade book. Each prize carries with it a $5,000 cash award. Before introducing the winners, uh, I'd like to identify this year's four judges. Uh, Alex and I were two of them. Uh, Matt Baum, I saw Matt, uh, Matt's out here somewhere, uh, was another, and uh, Mary Ann Just was the fourth. I'll start with the Goldsmith Book Prize in the academic category. With four judges, there's always the possibility that the voting will end in a tie. And we do have a tie, but a 2-2 vote is not how we got there. The four of us were unanimous in concluding that two equally deserving books should share the prize. One of them is Changing Minds or Changing Channels by Kevin Arsenault and Martin Johnson. The second is How Partisan Media Polarize America by Matthew Lewandowski. By coincidence, both books address the same topic, the media's role in the party polarization that now bedevils our politics. Are Fox, MSNBC, and the like exacerbating the problem? I'm sure many of you have a firm opinion on that question. But to a scholar, the question is a hypothesis to be tested, along with competing ones, such as the possibility that partisan media attract those who already have extreme views. If that's the case, partisan media are not so much fueling polarization as feeding off it. Both studies find the latter to be strongly the case. People with more extreme opinions are attracted to partisan outlets, and they gravitate toward those outlets that cater to their pre-existing beliefs. Where the two studies diverge is their assessment of the degree to which partisan outlets influence the opinions of citizens who otherwise would have more moderate views. Both studies find an effect of this type, but they differ uh, in their conclusions about the magnitude. That difference is not a problem for scholars. It means we have more to study. For now, these two books provide the best understanding yet of the media's impact on party polarization. I should note uh, that we've never before had as many as three recipients for this award. Uh, Kevin is the only one of the three with us tonight. We have a limited travel budget uh, for this award. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we were hoping that uh, Matthew and, and Martin could also be here, but prior commitments uh, made that unworkable. But we're delighted that Kevin is here. Kevin Arsenault, please step forward to receive the Goldsmith Book Award for Changing Minds or Changing Channels. So I mentioned at the outset, we also award a Goldsmith Prize in the trade book category. This year's winner is Who Owns the Future by Jaron Lanier. Let me share with you a couple of episodes from the amazing life of Jaron Lanier. He started college at the age of 13, drawn to computer science. In his 20s, he set for himself the task of popularizing the term virtual reality. It's now heard around the world. After that, he co-founded a firm that developed the first commercially available visual reality goggles, and he led the research team that developed the first virtual reality avatars. Jaron's also a composer. His Symphony for Amelia premiered in 2010, and he's a painter 
His first one-man show took place more than a decade ago at the Danish Museum for Modern Art. A half dozen years ago, Jaron turned his restless mind to book writing. We almost gave him the Books Goldsmith Award for his first book, You Are Not a Gadget, named by the New York Times as one of the 10 best books of 2010. We loved the book, but concluded it didn't quite meet the Goldsmith Prize's eligibility criteria. That issue arose again this year about Jaron's newest book, but there was no way we were going to pass on a second opportunity. Jaron Lanier's Who Owns the Future asks a simple but telling question. Why is our information, and it is our information, enriching Google, Facebook, and other tech firms, but not enriching us? Every time we go online, we freely give these firms information of value to them. Yet, in addition to being denied a piece of the action, we are being buffeted by the destructive economic efficiencies that result from their use of our information. These efficiencies are helping to hollow out our economy, contributing to job loss and wage stagnation at the bottom of the income ladder, while enriching a tiny few at the top. For Jaron, this is a moral issue, as well as a public policy issue. Not surprisingly, his moral concern is a source of unease among the titans of Silicon Valley. Why shouldn't we, the people, share in the wealth that our information creates for them? Jaron Lanier, please step forward to receive the Goldsmith Book Prize for Who Owns the Future. Thank you, Tom. It is now my honor to introduce each of the six finalists for the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. This year's competition was extremely competitive, I'm glad to say. Uh, in these difficult times for journalism, one might fear that the quality and ambition of re investigative reporting would be in decline, but that was definitely not the case with this year's entries. In addition to ben Greenfield, and ben Greenfield and Bill Epstein, the judges for this year's competition were Patricia Callahan of the Chicago Tribune and winner of last year's Goldsmith Prize, Bob Giles, former curator of the Neiman Foundation, and Linda Bilmes, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senior lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School. No judge is allowed to vote for an entry from his or her own news organization or affiliate. In January, after long deliberation, the judges selected the six finalists and also the winner. We announced the finalists at once because part of the purpose of the Goldsmith Prize for investigative journalism is to call attention to the excellent work that all the finalists have done and to the other great investigative work that is being done, which they represent. So it is with great pleasure that I describe the six finalists each of which in its own way was regarded as extraordinary. They will be presented in alphabetical order by news organization. Gary Fox was a prototypical underground coal miner, skinny to the point of looking emaciated and grateful for the work, though he knew the dangers, especially the risk of black lung. He spent more than 25 years working 
in the mines near Sylvester, West Virginia. And in time, a doctor certified by the U.S. Department of Labor examined him and diagnosed the most severe form of black lung. The government ordered his employer, the behemoth Massey Energy Company, to begin paying him monthly benefits. But as usual, the company appealed. At stake was $704.30 a month. To avoid, paying the coal to avoid paying, the coal company retained the services of the Federal Black Lung Unit of the law firm Jackson Kelly PLLC, the go-to place of the industry's giants when they want to beat back a miner's claim for benefits. As you might expect, ultimately, Jackson Kelly PLLC won. But as the Center for Public Integrity and ABC News revealed in an in-depth report, the law firm did it by withholding unfavorable evidence and other violations of the law. In the case of Gary Fox, the law firm's own doctor had examined him and found black lung disease, something the law firm never did disclose. Such behavior was standard practice, the investigation found. But even more shocking, there was a parallel cadre of doctors who were considered the ultimate medical authorities on black lung, but never seemed to find it, even when other doctors with less prestigious credentials did. This was especially true of a unit specializing in black, black lung at Johns Hopkins Hospital, ranked by some as the nation's top hospital. The series was entitled Breathless and Burdened, Dying from Black Lung Buried by Law and Medicine. It tells the horrific story of years of the systematic use of sophisticated legal strategies and doctors for hire to deny minors health benefits and their claims for being ill, often minors who had no legal representation at all because no one was willing to take their case against such a formidable array of opposition. In a year-long investigation, the team pierced this rarely scrutinized world with on-the-ground reporting from Appalachian coal country, assembling a massive body of previously confidential documents and creating a new database from thousands of court records. Chris Hamby, the lead reporter for the Center for Public Integrity, had already done reporting on the surprising resurgence of black lung. He heard repeated stories in the coal fields of a federal benefit system that was so stacked against minors that even those with strong evidence of severe disease often lost. As they dug deeper, the black lung unit of the Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions stood out for its seemingly ubiquitous opinions and consistent findings of no black lung. After studying the research amassed by Hamby, ABC News investigative producer Matthew Mosk and chief investigative correspondent Brian Roth dug into the role played by doctors. This included an extensive undercover camera investigation accompanying minors in rural Virginia where they were examined by a physician commonly hired by the coal companies. And they confronted Dr. Paul Wheeler, head of the Johns Hopkins unit who, under tough questioning, acknowledged being the coal industry's go-to doctor. The investigation found that since 2000, in 1,500 cases in which Dr. Wheeler read at least one x-ray, he never once found black lung. Though in hundreds of those cases, other doctors 
had given that diagnosis and follow-up biopsies made the black lung diagnosis certain. Two days after the joint reports appeared, Johns Hopkins suspended the program headed by Dr. Wheeler. Days later, U.S. Senators said they were using the stories as a guide in drafting legislation to reform black lung program's benefits and the program itself. The West Virginia Office of Disciplinary Counsel opened an investigation of three attorneys at Jackson Kelly and Gary Fox, the skinny miner that Johns Hopkins said did not have black lung, reopened his case. This time, though, the Johns Hopkins doctors would not have the final word. Please join me in recognizing the work on Breathless and Burdened by Chris Hamby and Ronnie Green of the Center for Public Integrity and Brian Ross, Rhonda Schwartz, and Matthew Mosk of ABC News. Would they please stand? investigation that came to be known as secrecy for sale inside the global offshore money maze began with an investigation of fraud in Australia that sprang a leak, a monumental leak as it happens. The leak was in the form of some 2.5 million files related to 10 offshore tax havens containing details on more than 120,000 offshore companies and trusts and nearly 130,000 individuals and agents in more than 170 countries. The leaked files provided facts and figures that illustrated how offshore financial secrecy has spread aggressively around the globe, allowing the wealthy and well-connected to dodge taxes and fueling corruption. In the files were the families and associates of longtime despots, Wall Street swindlers, Eastern European and Indonesian billionaires, Russian corporate executives, international arms dealers, and a sham director-fronted company that the European Union had labeled a cog in Iran's nuclear development program. But when this unwieldy trove arrived at the Washington-based Center for Public Integrity, and yes, the same Center for Public Integrity that was also doing the black lung investigation, no one really knew what was there. Under the auspices of the Center for Public Integrity's International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, an unprecedented collaborative global team of reporters and news organizations began the staggering task of making sense of the files and then mounting one of the most remarkable reporting exercises ever. Ultimately, the Center's International Consortium enlisted 112 journalists from 58 countries and 52 news organizations, such as the New York Times, the BBC, and The Guardian, to take the material and run with it. This massive effort was coordinated from Washington by a full-time staff of four. Beyond the leaked data, the reporters combed thousands of public records, including corporate files, property records, financial disclosures, and documents produced by lawsuits and regulatory and criminal investigations. Hundreds of people were interviewed in more than a dozen languages. The result, dozens of stories in scores of nations that cast a blinding light 
on the global conspiracy to hide money. The secret offshore money system was laid bare. The impact of these stories in the United States and worldwide was, a was as staggering as the collaborative effort. For instance, international tax investigations were launched by the IRS in partnership with the UK and Australian tax authorities. Indeed, upon publication, IRS agents appeared at the international consortium's offices demanding the leaked data, as did Homeland Security, justice officials, and the governments of Canada, Korea, and Greece. Consortium refused on the grounds of protecting confidential sources. But then the US, UK, and Australian tax offices admitted that they had received the same data one year before the journalists got it, but they had done nothing with it. All over the world, the series of articles has prompted public outrage and then toughened laws on financial disclosure. Civil and criminal charges were filed in many nations, including in the United States. There were impacts of similar sorts in Britain, France, Russia, Luxembourg, Austria, India, and Israel, Germany, Bangladesh, South Korea, Greece, and the Philippines. You get the idea. This was huge. And the impact is still unfolding. Representing the many journalists who contributed to secrecy for sale inside the global offshore money maze are Marina Walker-Guevara, Emilia Diaz-Struck, and Gerald, Gerard Ryle, director of the Center for Public Integrity's Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Would you all please stand? Last June, a remarkable documentary was aired by Frontline in English and Univision in Spanish that began with the voices of six female migrant farm workers. The foreman told my father, said the first to speak, we have no work for you, but I can hire your daughters. And from the moment we started to work in the fields, they harassed us horribly. When she said harassed, what she meant was essentially the widespread practice of raping female migrant farm workers, something that the investigation found to be commonplace, from the dusty towns of California's Central Valley to the leafy orchards of Washington State, from the frozen plains of Iowa to the steamy tomato fields of Florida. In other words, everywhere. They look at you like they own you, and whenever they want, they can have you, said another woman. I don't speak English, I don't have work papers, so I have to put up with this, said a third. The documentary was Rape in the Fields, and it was the result of years of reporting in a collaborative effort by the Investigative Reporting Project at the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism, Frontline, Univision Documentaries, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. Perhaps the biggest challenge of all was persuading the victims to be so bold and brave as to tell their stories on camera in the face of fear of retribution from the perpetrators, deportation by the government, and shame from the cultural stigma of rape. But as one of the women in the documentary said, if I stay quiet, then it is going to continue happening. That is why I prefer to talk about it so that many people can see themselves in me so they won't stay quiet anymore. 
The investigation was sparked by the curiosity of a graduate student at Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism who's reporting on child labor for her summer internship. She was in North Carolina and came across a migrant farm worker with seven children who confided that none of the seven had been fathered by her husband. They were all the offspring of her supervisor who had demanded sex in exchange for keeping her job. Berkeley's celebrated investigative reporting program became curious as to whether this was an isolated incident or a widespread but hidden phenomenon. In collaboration with the rest of the reporting team of institutions, a prolonged inquiry began and what became clear was that sexual exploitation against women in the agricultural sector is an open secret in the vast documented and undocumented immigrant community across this country. Virtually no other media outlets had ever reported on this subject and no government agency seemed to be paying any attention. There were no comprehensive numbers of data on the presence of rape in the field. So along with visiting isolated communities and building relationships with shoe leather reporters, the team also began to conduct, construct an original database from federal and private lawsuits that were in the public record. And then slowly, they began finding women who would speak out. The documentary broke the wall of silence. It publicly identified the perpetrators and for the first time raised the issue nationally as to why no one, no one had ever been criminally prosecuted for this. The impact of the documentary reverberated throughout the national press, spurred action by local, state, and legislative bodies, and has begun to create change in the immigrant communities most affected by this issue. Once considered an open secret, sexual, sexual violence in the fields became national news. And perhaps most important, the community itself began to rise. For instance, California Rural Legal Assistance, which operates on the front lines of sexual harassment in the fields, reports a surge in women willing to come forward and complain. Please join me in recognizing the excellent and important work of Andres Sediel, Bernice Young, and Lowell Bergman representing Berkeley's investigative reporting program, Frontline, Univision, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. Would you please stand? away in a two-story office building in Coral Gables, Florida, was a now notorious company called Biogenesis. It was ostensibly an anti-aging clinic, but its real business was selling performance-enhancing drugs from human growth hormone to testosterone to anabolic steroids. And its customers? Some of the biggest names in professional sports, including the New York Yankees' $275 million man, Alex Rodriguez, who had sworn he stopped juicing, as it's called, a decade ago. Shortly before Biogenesis abruptly closed its doors and its owner disappeared, an employee of Biogenesis gave an extraordinary batch of company records to a scrappy and courageous weekly newspaper called the Miami New Times. The result was a story called The Steroid Search which tore the lid off the role of steroids in professional sports like nothing ever had. 
In the past, there had been speeches and congressional hearings and even athletes who had come forward, but there had never been anything like the specifics, the names, the drugs, the works that the Miami New Times put before the world. As a result, Major League Baseball suspended 13 players for their ties to Biogenesis, including Alex, Alex, including Alex Rodriguez. It was the largest round of such discipline in the history of American sports and represented more than just a simple story about cheaters getting caught. The investigation forced baseball to aggressively confront its long-simmering doping problem. The day the story was published, a senior writer at ESPN, at ESPN wrote, five years from now, we'll be looking back at this day and maybe we'll be saying to ourselves that the Miami New Times did more than any of the other efforts to clean up baseball and maybe all sports. But New Times wasn't through. It published a second story called Source Code that exposed a very questionable, the very questionable tactics of Major League Baseball's Department of Investigations. This group, staffed by ex-police officers who New Times showed, paid witnesses thousands of dollars, intimidated sources, and cobbled up a frivolous lawsuit to gain information. Ironically, Alex Rodriguez has used this article repeatedly in court to challenge the damage done to his reputation in the first article. <laughs> then in December, a third article appeared, this one called The Steroid State, which showed how Florida's governor, Rick Scott, had deliberately gutted the Department of Health and appointed managers who discouraged criminally charging wayward doctors and pharmacies. As a result, hundreds of anti-aging clinics like Biogenesis operated and continue to operate without even basic inspections. Several are owned, are owned by convicted felons and many employ physicians and pharmacists with long disciplinary histories to sell federally restricted drugs like steroids, testosterone, and human growth hormone to anyone willing to pay cash. There's a sports expression for when someone gets in the boxing ring with someone much bigger and, if you will, kicks ass. It is said to be punching above your weight class. Please join me in recognizing Tim Elfrink and Chuck Strauss of the Miami New Times for, without question, punching above their weight. baby is born, something is supposed to happen automatically and fast, certainly within 48 hours. The newborn is supposed to have a sample taken which will be sent to a lab so that the child can be screened for potentially life-threatening or other dangerous medical conditions. The speed of the screening can be the difference in correcting a condition or living with a chronic disability if the condition is not immediately addressed. And it can also be the difference, of course, between life and death. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel became aware that at many hospitals, there was an almost defiant complacency about promptly sending the sample out for screening with sometimes dire results. For instance, two babies born with the same condition in Colorado, one on Tuesday, the other on Friday. Today, the baby born on Tuesday is a healthy toddler because the hospital's custom during the week was to send the sample out immediately. But the baby born on Friday is dead. 
because it was the practice against regulations to bundle the samples taken before and over a weekend to send the following week. There was no point. The screening lab was closed on weekends. It wasn't a calculated effort to harm children. It was just cheaper to bundle, cheaper to send the sample by U.S. mail rather than courier, or just the way things were done because it was easier to do several at once than to send them immediately, or the lab wasn't working. You've heard tonight about investigations that took responsibility for trying to protect powerless people, minors with black lungs, immigrant women in the fields. But no one is as truly powerless as a newborn child, and it was these innocents that the Journal Sentinel team set out to champion. The investigation was not just local, but spanned the entire country and was the first ever analysis of newborn screening effectiveness in the United States. This meant that the Journal Sentinel team had to do the kind of research and collection that is normally the province of universities and federal health agencies, but it had never been done. Using Freedom of Information Act laws and persistence to pry free vital information, they built a graceful and intuitive interactive database out of dozens of disparate data sets with little uniformity. What they found was sometimes horrific. In Texas, more than 54,000 samples, 14.5% of them, took more than five days to get to the lab. In Arizona, one hospital had 70% of its samples arrive late, even though the lab was a mere seven miles away. In New York, lest we in the East get smug, 40% of the samples arrived later than the 48-hour time frame required by state law. And this was appallingly true even at famous hospitals such as Lenox Hill in New York City. This 40% translated into more than 100,000 samples from babies that failed to meet the state standard for being tested expeditiously. In just two states, Iowa and Delaware, where nearly all samples routinely delivered to state labs within the national recommended time frame. Especially disappointing was that many of the hospitals fought to keep their records of sending samples secret, claiming privacy concerns. The report was published in November, and there was an immediate reaction. The American Hospital Association sent out a quality alert to its 5,000-member hospitals, urging them to clean up the problem, and the Association of Public Health Laboratories did the same. States are moving to add weekend hours to testing labs, improve courier services, and increase tracking and reporting. Several states, which had guarded the data on screening released hospital by, they had been guarding this, the data on screening, released hospital by hospital statistics, bringing the total number of states to release that information to 29, with 21 still refusing, but under increased pressure to make the information public. Thousands of hospitals and dozens of state agencies had ineffective and unaccountable systems for newborn screening, and thanks to the diligence and hard work of the Journal Sentinel, those numbers are shrinking. Please join me in saluting the work of Ellen Gabler, Greg Borowski, and the staff of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for deadly delays. I suspect that many of you in this room have seen the movie, The Best Years of Our Lives. Produced in 1946, 
won seven Academy Awards for its portrayal of three combat vets who come home from World War II. All three have been affected by the war. One has lost both of his hands. There is drunkenness, divorce, disappointment, depression, but by the end of the movie, all three of the vets have found their footing and are moving on, presumably into the best years of their lives. The image of an undaunted and ultimately resilient greatest generation of war veterans is a far cry from the image of veterans of Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. During World War II, there was no such thing as a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. We called it shell shock or battle fatigue, and it was considered rare and a passing condition that some family time, good food, and rest would put to rights. This, as it turns out, is a cruel distortion of the reality revealed by the Wall Street Journal series, The Lobotomy Files. The journal's investigation unearthed something appalling in previously undisclosed Veterans Administration files, medical records, military records, archival films, and often heartrending interviews with aging relatives of veterans. What they found was that during and after World War II, the Veterans Administration lobotomized some 2,000 vets for conditions that were derived from their combat experience, conditions that would today be considered the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. In unveiling this moment in our history, the journal also gave back to the current generation of American vets suffering from PTSD the honorable place they deserve. They are not somehow a lesser generation. They are like those guys who came home in 1945, some of whom were so unlucky as to be caught up in what was almost a fad of dealing with disturbing behavior from the trauma of combat with lobotomy. The artifacts that the report disclosed are poignant and painful. In 1949, the VA distributed a 37-point take-home guide for families whose son or husband or brother had gone to war a man but was being returned to them a child after being lobotomized. You may say anything that pops into his head, thus embarrassing him, the pamphlet says. Like a young child, you may say, I won't to everything you suggest. He may masturbate openly or play in the tub for hours and at the same time may not get himself clean. And finally, the last of the 37 points. When will he be well? The pamphlet asks, we cannot answer this question. In most cases, of course, he would never be well in any genuine way, as the procedure cuts the patient off from reality and himself, making him docile and quiet, but effectively ending his life as the person he was. This blockbuster revelation was hailed as hugely important, but of course, there was nothing to be done for the lobotomized vet. Even so, the impact of the series was enormously important to the soldiers of today and their sense of what the true cost of combat is. They are not lesser men than their fellow soldiers from World War II, and that is a tremendous gift. Please join me in recognizing the work of Michael Phillips and Matthew Rose of the Wall Street Journal for the Lobotomy Files.
Each year, the Goldsmith judges can, at their discretion, also vote an award to award a citation for an entry that was of special importance, but they did not feel fit into the Goldsmith Prize guidelines for one reason or another. This year, they awarded a citation to the Reuters series, Unaccountable, which was a penetrating analysis of the arcane and even bizarre bookkeeping practices of the Pentagon. While the judges ruled that the series was not investigated in the Goldsmith competition sense, it was so important and so well done that they wanted to give it a special recognition. The citation reads as follows. For the past 20 years, America's largest government agency, the U.S. Defense Department, has flunked its annual financial audit. In this damning expose, Reuters shows why it matters. Reporters Scott Paltrow and Kelly Carr detail how the Pentagon uses thousands of obsolete half-century-old computer systems that lead to widespread fraud, expense, duplication, and underpayments to ordinary soldiers in the field. While Congress continues to appropriate hundreds of billions of dollars every year for sophisticated new defense technologies and weapons, the Pentagon is unable to keep track of the costs or to account for how it spends its $565.8 billion annual budget. The Goldsmith judges wish to recognize this important piece of explanatory journalism with a special citation. Please join me in recognizing the superb work of Scott Paltrow and Kelly Carr of Reuters for Unaccountable. Now come to the moment for awarding the winner of the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. Before we do that, I would like to ask all the finalists and the citation winners to stand one more time so that we can once again recognize their invaluable work. Please. This year, the judges awarded the Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting to breathless and burdened, dying from black lung, buried by law and medicine by the Center for Public Integrity and ABC News. There's an unspoken convention among journalists that you don't literally call a political figure a liar to his face. And its corollary is that you don't simply declare something said by the high-powered person being interviewed on camera that he or she is wrong. My favorite moment of the past presidential debate season was the moment when Candy Crowley, who was moderating a debate between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, 
broke that convention. She did it respectfully and without a sneer, but she did what I think journalists should do in such a situation. She put accuracy ahead of convention. In case you didn't see it, Mitt Romney asserted that President Obama had taken days to declare the Benghazi attack an act of terror. The president interrupted and said it wasn't true. Mr. Romney then doubled down and insisted that it was true. And at that point, Candy Crowley, Candy Crowley stated essentially as a fact checker that the president had, in fact, declared Benghazi an act of terror the day after it happened. Never one to miss a moment like that, the president then cracked, can you say that a little louder? <laughs> the moderator had the good taste not to do that. But it was typical of her to have risen to the occasion and used her voluminous experience, knowledge, and commitment to the facts to set the record straight in the first place, something that Mr. Romney complained bitterly about later. I, on the other hand, was cherry. Candy Crowley is CNN's award-winning chief political correspondent and hosts what many feel is the best Sunday morning high-powered interview show, State of the Nation with Candy Crowley. This is at 9 a.m. In case you have missed it, it's terrific. In 2012, she became the first woman to moderate a presidential debate in two decades. And I genuinely wonder if a male moderator would have done what she did. But lest you think that she has it in for Republicans, she was an outspoken voice at CNN discussing it last August how CNN's then proposed and now canceled documentary on Hillary Clinton would make her life, Candy's life, more difficult. This is a commissioned documentary from people who are not in the employ of CNN, she told Politico. It's not me, it's not Wolf Blitzer, it's not John King. It's an outside documentary group, but we're with CNN and so this is not a story where the nuances are well received, particularly by Republicans. Such clear-eyed frankness was vintage Candy Crowley. After graduating from Randolph-Macon's Women, Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia, she began her broadcast career at a Washington, D.C. radio station, became White House correspondent for the Associated Press, then moved to NBC TV in Washington, and then on to CNN. She has covered presidential campaigns since Ronald Reagan, and her pivotal role in CNN's American Vote, America Votes in 2008, won a Peabody Award. She's one of the savviest and most incisive political analysts on the air, is a laser-sharp interviewer and an inspiration, especially to other women who want to rise to the first rank of journalism. She's also a human being, as you would expect. Dana Bash, CNN's chief congressional correspondent, was interviewed about the best advice she had ever gotten as a journalist. She cited what she called Candy Crowley's three Bs. She said that when Candy's sons called at work and she was busy, she had the three B test. Was it broken, burning, or bleeding? <laughs> if not, she told her son she would call back soon. I will add a fourth B, Dana Bash said. Brilliant, I concur. It is my honor to present the winner of this year's Goldsmith Award for Career Achievement, Candy Crowley.
thank you all very much. I let me just first say, to be here on the same program, uh, listening to the work um, that the uh, Goldberg winners uh, have gotten for books they have written and you investigative journalists makes me remember, right, that's why I became a journalist. I mean, I applaud you again. It is an honor to be up here with you all in the audience. Your work is spectacular. So, like many times when um, I'm asked to speak places, I said to the uh, RPR person, well, what do they want me to talk about? And she said, well, whatever's on your mind, which is a really dangerous thing to say to me, as any of my friends will tell you, because I will tell you what's on my mind, and, and by and large, um, sometimes people don't like it. Um, so what's on my mind, of course, is how I should tell my daughter-in-law that it's okay to say no to a three-year-old without criticizing her parenting skills. Um, so see me after this program if any of you have any great ideas, because that's really what's been occupying me. But I figured, well, I can't talk for 15 minutes about that. So let's, uh, you know, looking at other things that people ask me to talk about, it's what it's like uh, raising children as a single mom uh, for the past three decades, um, and uh, indeed that was a challenge. Uh, they sometimes say, well, listen, can you talk about what's going on in Washington? You already heard about the uh, traffic jam. Um, and um, oftentimes it's about who's going to win the election or what's going on. But, you know, let's wait till September for that. So I thought what I do, what I opted for was a quick look, and I promise you it will be quick because there's time for Q&A. So if you want to know about any of those other things, do let me know. Um, is to talk a little bit about the state of journalism, present company totally accepted because, again, you guys are amazing. Um, I once uh, saw Lily Tomlin one-woman show for those of you who don't know who Lily Tomlin is, she's a comedian. Um, and she did this whole riff on what I worry about. I worry about this, I worry about that. And it was hysterical. And when, for instance, she, she said at one point, I, I worry that when I give my credit card to the department store cashier, the message will come back, kill her immediately. <laughs> Which I, always, I thought it was a brilliant show. And so well, I, I was thinking about, which should I talk about, knowing that we'd have examples of the best of journalism. I thought I'd kind of be the downer of the group. And I'll um, tell you a little bit about what's worrying me about journalism at this point. Um, I, and I want to be a little careful because when, you know, to me it kind of boils down to internet and the challenges that, it, uh, that we face. And I don't want to be the old lady dressed in black petting her cat in the bookstore complaining about Kindle. Um, so somehow, you know, I want to first of all embrace the internet because it's amazing. I imagine that the investigative journalists here could regale us with story after story about what they found and how they found it and what great use it is. And it is for me as well. I mean, I, uh, I believe in the, uh, you know, dissemination of as much information. I'd like some of it to be more truthful. But I indeed, it is an amazing, amazing thing at what we now have um, at our fingertips. At the same time, I think it has presented us with a lot of challenges as journalists that we haven't quite yet figured out how to do. And I think we lose things um, 
in the process. I, I think it's an amazing tool that is not always used well. Um, so I worry about that we are not talking about the things that touch people's lives. And what we've, I don't, it, I recommend to you a Pew study from about a year ago that looked back at the campaign. And by the way, not everyone totally agrees with his assessment of the debate, but that's a whole other story. Um, the, uh, it, when they looked back at the campaign, what the Pew study found was that when, that the um, opinions as voiced on Twitter were put up against on major events, presidential debates, presidential statements, um, uh, you know, primary nights. When the Twitter trend was looked at up against public polling, which is broader, uh, what they found was they almost inevitably were the opposite. When Twitter found that you know, such and such a statement by the president was brilliant, uh, the public polling was usually the opposite. And there was, you know, there was sometimes 20 uh, points difference. Now, Twitter obviously trends a lot younger. I think 50% of their adults are under 30. Um, it tends more democratic. Um, it is not polling, and yet I think that somehow, and I don't want to pick on Twitter, but social media in general, where, you know, it's like we have whole segments about trending. We're all looking at what's trending. Well, where's it trending? It's not trending in my household in Missouri, I can assure you. It's not trending uh, in uh, Michigan, where I was born and still have relatives. I, I um, <laughs> which I, I have a, a bunch of nieces, and um, I remember in 2004, uh, one of them called me and said, well, and Candy, you know, what are you, what are you doing tonight? And I said, oh, um, I've got an interview with John Edwards tonight. She said, oh my gosh. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, you do? Well, like, what time? And I said, oh, it's 7 o'clock. She said, oh, great. And I thought, wow, well, this is good, because she's not exactly a political junkie. I thought, well, that's, that's really good. And so we, um, the interview was over, and I called her and I said, what do you think? She said, I thought you were going to talk to that guy who talks to dead people. And I said, what? She said, you know, John Edward, he talks to dead people. So we're, we're not always, you know, they're not always in touch with us as in general as the news media, and we're certainly not always in touch with them. And that's sort of a light-handed way of saying, look, there are, I looked this up, 241 million active Twitter users when in the last time somebody put out a believable statement. And that means like once a month they actually tweet as opposed to the watchers. Um, there's 7.1 billion people in the world. I, I feel as though we are uh, sometimes following the social media as the shiny thing. I think it's a great place to find tips. I think it's a great place if you trust the source to see stories. I, I, it is just, in, I mean, and I'm on Twitter and I like Twitter as a tip sheet. Um, what bothers me is how we're all sort of being pulled by it. Um, and how we all sort of react to it when in fact, and I think we are shutting out sort of a large portion of um, the country, this country, and in fact, the world. Now it was, I mean, was there anything cooler than social media during the Arab Spring? No, there really wasn't. Is there anything cooler than finding out how someone whose life is so completely different from you and light years away in, in culturally and geographically and finding out how they feel. There's nothing cooler than that. But um, I, I do feel that this sort of trending stuff um, takes us off what a journalist is supposed to be, which is to find out 
like what's important out there? What can we be doing that's interesting, that will change people's lives? I mean, everybody sitting in here that was nominated or won an award, change people's lives. And to me, that's, that was the exciting, that's what I like, to make a difference. You know, who, who doesn't get born and try to find somewhere to make a difference? And, and I think sometimes that we let social media drive us um, sometimes in ways that turn out to be very productive and sometimes in ways that, you know, eat up two and three and four days um, for nothing. Um, I, I worry that the speed of social media is pressuring daily news into putting something out before it actually passes what used to be really stringent rules on what you, I, I worked for the AP early in my career and, and their whole thing was, get it first, but first get it right. Um, I think sometimes we forget about that. And I think it's, that, look, it's pressure. It's not, I don't, I don't hold the viewing public, I don't hold anybody blameless. Um, but I, I um, the pressure to get it first is nothing compared to getting it wrong um, and what you undergo that way. And I just feel as though um, the pressure is intense because the adrenaline um, I think any journalist will tell you the adrenaline of a, of a breaking story. There's just nothing quite like it. And when you see um, something start to pop, I mean, how many times have you heard in, in news stories, you know, well, um, you know, this, uh, a, a tweet from, you know, this tarmac or a tweet from here, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, the starting gun, and you can hear it and you can feel it as a journalist, but it also pushes you I think in, in ways that sometimes we need to sort of step back. Um, when the plane crashed in San Francisco, I think it was San Francisco, not too long ago, it happened actually on my watch. And one of the things that I'll point out is that while the tweets were enormously helpful and you could f find people and track them down and, and you, you could verify stories and you, could, uh, you knew kind of what runway people were on, but the original tweets were wrong about no deaths um, or about the plane completely demolished, no passengers off, and we got conflicting reports. So it's not, it's not a news source. Uh, social media is not, I mean, I know <laughs> we used to laugh all the time about, I don't, you know, I'm not a professional, I'm a journalist. Um, and I think that's, you know, there, there is some truth to that because I do think that people with a natural curiosity and, um, you know, et cetera, um, you know, certainly can convey information, but um, when you then convey it to a larger audience, I think that sometimes we rush uh, too quickly and um, forget about get it right and then report it. Um, I worry we're becoming, and when I say we're, I mean media. Um, I, I worry we're becoming um, companies that promote ourselves. Like it's, it, so if you go to, um, I, I resisted uh, Twitter and uh, to a certain extent Instagram. Instagram I'm totally baffled by, but I'm getting there. Um, it, 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 because I find that they, um, we use them, I don't think people sign up to follow your Twitter account because they want you to tell them when you're on TV. Um, and what happens is it becomes this kind of circular thing where you go, hey, I'm on TV now, but be sure to catch me on Twitter and don't forget Instagram and also Facebook. 
And then you go to Facebook and it goes, hey, thanks for coming to Facebook. Don't forget to see me on TV. And do so it becomes this thing where <laughs> we're, we're just, and I, I, I get it. And I understand you say, hey, here's a really good interview. This guy told me something I really thought was amazing. I, I think that's certainly valid. But, but I think at some level, um, we haven't been able to figure out how to take these different forums and make them something more than watch me do this and watch me do that and here's what you missed on TV. I mean, I think that there are ways to use those. Have I figured them out? No, but I do think um, that I feel as though and resisted for years putting, hey, here's what I'm having on the show and here's, I mean, we do do it from our someplace else. We do it from our show's Twitter account, not my Twitter account. But I, I because I feel, as I said, I don't think people sign on to my Twitter. Well, some of them sign on to yell at me, but you know, some of them sign on because they actually want to you know, see if I know something or what my take on something. And so I think there needs to be sort of more thought on what are these different venues. Um, I used to tell people all the time, young people getting into journalism, and I said, well, what do you want to do? And they said, I want to be on TV. And I go, well, that's not, that's a forum, you know, that's a, that's a venue. You know, I mean, if you want to be on TV, go, you know, go Hollywood. Um, what you want is you want to be a journalist. And if you want to be a journalist, TV is one way to do that. And it used to be you were either on TV or you were on radio. Sometimes those uh, intertwine, or you were in print. Um, having been on all of those at different times, um, they all are a slightly different animal that you can do things with. Um, I, uh, I think that there, again, that there are ways that we could use these forums that I have yet to figure out. Um, but, you know, I, I tweet to talk to you about my TV to me seems um, not a great use of it. Um, the other thing is uh, I worry about collective thinking among reporters. It's like boys on the bus writ large. There was an article after um, the first debate, I think, the first Romney versus Obama debate, where someone, a reporter in the press room of the debates, and you know, these are just, I mean, they're just gigantic rooms full of people with their computers, um, who s reported that, rather than listening to the debate, more reporters were following it on Twitter. And I get it, I get why you do that, but then it becomes, you know, the, the, the truthiness that gets into your head is, has to be somehow swayed by what, what you're seeing on Twitter. Um, and, and for it to, um, to replace listening to the debate and, and um, seeing for yourself what you think the lead is and who you think messed up and, and all of that, to me, is sort of an abandonment of, of journalism. And again, it's, it, to me, it's kind of um, now everybody's on this bus and we're kind of looking at Twitter to see, you know, take pulse. And to me, you know, journalists take note and they don't, they don't take pulse. They, they find stuff out. Um, I worry that we are watering down our product. I used to spend, I bet Brian can tell you this, I, I used to spend days putting together a TV spot. Now it's like, you know, when do you need an hour and a half to do that? I mean, that's not, that's not easy to do a TV piece in an hour and a half, even if it's breaking news. Um, and so now you're, hey, can you tweet that? Can you blog that? 
Um, would you do a radio podcast? Could you write a little something for the, um, you know, dot com? And we need the TV piece by this, and can you do live like that? Now, can you do it? Sure, you can do it. But uh, again, I worry a little bit that what's happening is when I, you know, you were either in print or you were in TV or you were in radio when I first started in this business. Now, I get the economies of what's going on in, in the news business, but now newspaper reporters are doing video um, and we're doing wire stories and radio stories and podcasts and you have to think maybe a couple of days to do one TV spot was a little lengthy. Maybe that's too much time, but if you're doing all of this in a given day, what are the possibilities for mistakes? What are the possibilities uh, that you are not stepping back going, let me take the 50,000 foot view and figure out what this is about. Um, I, I, I had a, a dear friend, Charles Bierbauer, who used to work for CNN, who's now a teacher down in South Carolina, a professor down in South Carolina, who um, once said to me that somebody came rushing in and said, hey, can you do this, and can you do this, and can you do this, and make that short, and he looked up at them and said, I don't have time to write short. And it's really the truth, because when you, in order to kind of bring it down, there has to be some thought between here and, you know, send. Um, I, I also worry, and I've worried about this a long time, and this is not necessarily something that, the, this is only something the internet enhances, I think, through the, co the commentaries and the social blogs. I worry that we distort the people that we cover. I worry that the humanness of um, people we cover is lost in the sort of unforgiving space um, of the internet where there is no inflection and there is, no there is obviously in streaming video and all that, but if you're re reading. Um, and I, I remember one time um, Hillary Clinton, and this was some time ago, and I think it was when she was gonna run for uh, Senate, and someone said, well, you know, I mean, there's this story, and that story, and that story, and people just don't seem to like you, and she said, if I read all those stories about me, I wouldn't like me. And, uh, you know, and I, that made a huge impression on me, because I thought, wow, like, what is it like to be covered? You don't wanna know, let me tell you that. Um, it, it is not comfortable, You're, you know, people ascribe motivations, and I, I think somehow this gets enhanced on the internet where people can fire off a clever little, you know, 140 character long tweet, um, and it gets, you know, it's clever, and so someone else, you know, that's my favorite tweet, and, and pretty soon we have made um, caricatures, um, sort of flat caricatures out of people and now I'm talking politicians who um, are not, the parts are so much better than the whole. And I don't know that people see that. I think it, it does explain why people reelect their, their representatives and their senators so often is they know that their part seems okay. It's just somehow when it becomes a whole in Washington. Um, so I, I think it is um, incumbent upon us to kind of remember all of this. There's not a soul to the internet in the way um, that there are in people. And I, I think to uh, mischaracterize or, or paint these kind of crazy portraits uh, of people does not do the public process any good, and it, and it doesn't do journalism any good. You know, you have to be a good guy or a bad guy. You have to be, you know, a cool, 
which would it be, as Barbara Bush would say, or, you know, just, it, it, it is, it is too easy, we too easily fit people into the 140 characters or into the blog or uh, however, into the clever little um, w whatever it is that you're writing. So I, I <laughs> we started this thing at um, my Sunday show, which we call Getting to Know. And so you'd be surprised how hard it is to get people to do this. And I say, I'm just gonna ask you questions about your life, you know? We're not doing it for TV, we're putting it on our, um, on our website for State of the Union, and uh, so it'll say getting to know, you know, Lindsey Graham, or getting to know so-and-so. And then questions like, like I one time asked Lindsey Graham, because he did it, and I said, so if I walked into your house and saw your living room, like what would be on the floor? And he said, oh, a lot of crap. Uh, okay, now so this, so suddenly he's not this sort of, you know, con Southern conservative, you know, guy without a sense of humor. What it gives you a little, just a little seasoning to who these people are to make them less flat. Um, but just one final quick story about this because this is something I've struggled with a lot, you know, in the profile pieces that we do or in the, you know, how we describe the adjectives we use to, you know, do great writing and, and how do we describe this person? How would this person, when they saw it, see that? I, you need to be honest. I'm not arguing that we need to be all sweet and love these people. I just think that there's more to most of the people that we present as public figures than uh, we are letting on or that we even know. But I had, I, I did both John Lewis and Herman Cain for getting to know's. And I, I interviewed John first and I mean, let's face it, there's, you know, this is a walking, living hero and legend. Uh, a, a man who faced death m more times than anybody ever should have to for the civil rights fight. Um, I asked him if he was ever afraid and he said, no, I really wasn't. I said, so you're being beaten by men on horseback and thrown into jail for the 9,000th time and you're not afraid? And he said, no, because I knew that this was a system that had to change. Herman Cain comes on. Herman Cain, I don't know how many of you know his background, but he, he, one of the things that happened early on in his life was he was asked to be, one, he too was from Georgia, was asked, I think, South anyway, was asked, listen, will you, would you like to um, be one of those that gets bust in high school? And he talked about it to his father and his father said, I don't know how you can pay attention to your studies um, if you're all involved in this. I want you to get good grades. I want you to go to college. So Herman Cain didn't join and didn't, you know, said, no, I'm gonna stay at my, at my black high school. He goes to the Navy um, and I, s and at one point came up to Washington and I said to him, so I hear, um, Mr. Cain, that you cut your own hair. Is that true? And he said, oh, 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 or you used to cut your own hair. He said, no, I still do. I said, you cut your own hair? I said, why do you do that? And he said, I'll tell you, I was in the Navy and he had a you know, fairly high position in the Navy. It had something to do with intelligence, I think. And he said, I came up and I was walking in Virginia, assuming this is the 60s. And he said, and I saw like a barbershop. Like, I really needed a haircut. I went in, there's three uh, black barbers and I, I sat down and he said, you know, in the South, you just sit down there and you wait for one of the guys to have an empty chair and then you sit up and he said, so I'm sitting there and they've got three guys in the chair and one of them leaves, but somebody walks in and the barber motions that guy. And he said, it goes on a couple times. So I go up to the black barber and I go, okay, is there a different system here? I mean, what, what's going on? He said, oh, we don't cut black hair here. Uh, we can't cut black hair here. But if you go on the other side of the Sears and Roebuck, 
there's a black barber shop over there. And he said, so I went to the Sears and Wilbur, and I got myself some hair clippers, and I've been cutting my hair ever since. And I thought, I get both of them now. Like, there's ways to fight the system. You're either the individual who fights it within your own life and becomes Herman Cain and starts Godfather and does all those things he did, or you're John Lewis who says, I'm going to change the system. So you either beat the system or you change it, and they're valid. And I thought, these two stories like explain so much about these two men to me and their positions and how they view things so differently. And I feel like that sort of conversation gets lost in our you know, instant media days. I'm sorry to have been such a downer after we saw all these great, uh, these folks doing great work. I, I just think that my, my bottom line here is, I think this is an, an amazing tool that we now have in front of us that opens up so much information and I would never, and, and so, so many forums for people to talk and speak and discuss. But I think as far as journalism is concerned, I worry that so far the internet has mastered us rather than us mastering the internet. So I look forward to kind of, I don't know how we do that, but um, I trust, again, looking at this great talent in here that we're gonna figure it out. So thank you all very much for coming tonight. Thank you for this. We do have time for a few questions. I know we, we're later than we are normally are, so we'll just have a couple. But uh, I do want to uh, invite questions. Yes. Uh, Phil Hills. Uh, if I uh, might remind any people asking questions, make it a question, make it short. Yeah, I, uh, director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. And I think journalists in this room uh, uh, have these worries as well. And the question that I, I'm just going to ask you, so who do you talk to when you have these worries in TV? Who can you go to and say, listen, aren't we doing this too much or doing that too much? Um. Well, you know, look, the, the, are there others who share uh, my concern at CNN, at NBC, at CBN? Uh, absolutely they do. And again, you don't want to be the cat lady. You know, you want to say, oh, this stuff is so terrible. It really, in the great days, you know, it was much better. But you do want to try to get it a little under control. Um, I, um, I don't tend to offer advice to the corporate executives at CNN or any place else. Um, they've got enough advice coming at them. Um, but I try, look, what are you in charge of ultimately? Your bailiwick, right? What you can control, what you can make different on your, um, you know, on your site or in your program. And that's kind of, um, I it, you know, it's bigger than me and I'm not, I'm not really sure how to go. About. Although I always thought the other thing I thought was, you know, we've yet to, we, I don't know how many of you know what the, the good housekeeping seal of approval you ever heard of that? Okay, so it was like this thing like, hey, this is a great toaster, and they'd give it the, I think we need one for the internet. <laughs> so that people would go, you know, they go here, okay, they're accurate 98% of the time, which is better than 100% of these other sites. And so that you would, there would be some way, now of course we all know that whoever that committee is would immediately become controversial and, you know, but I mean, I do think that there are things that can be done, but I think perspective is everything. Hey, look at what's trending on social media. 
However, we should you know, point out that there are six billion other people that haven't chimed in yet. I mean, something not that quite that sarcastic, but um, along those lines, I think is something, just to give it some perspective while we try to wrestle it to the ground and figure out how to, how to make it work for us rather than it working on us. Hi, uh, my name is Max. I'm a member of the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum Committee. We met earlier. And I want to ask you a question about the debate that you moderated um, mm -hmm. this last election cycle. What, principally, what, do you, what would you say motivated you to jump in and put in the fact? And what did you feel about all the reactions to your decision? I wish I could tell you what motivated me. I mean, in, in the end, um, two, two points. Um, one is that at some point, and really it's going so quickly that, and I'm really, you know, there's a guy talking in my ear saying, okay, Romney's now talked three minutes less than President Obama. Because President Obama talked so slowly that Mitt Romney always got in more words but less time. So you had to, you were constantly sort of listening to that. Um, I was very aware of the people in the town hall because they'd, they really had been there since seven in the morning. And it was very clear that I wasn't going to get to most of them. And so I was trying to kind of move things along. And I do remember thinking, you know, they're going to get wrapped around this axle. You know, yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. And there was at one point when, when Governor Romney looked at me, and it was sort of one of those, now, looking back at it, I think, maybe he was talking about why is the president interrupting me? I mean, you don't know what's, you know, what he's thinking. And so, it, honestly, I just said it. Now, I just want to be really specific. Number one, uh, the question of Mitt Romney's was about in the Rose Garden the next day, right? You did not call it an act of terrorism. And in fact, act of terrorism does appear in the transcript of that thing. Now, what is also generally missed is that when the president said, Candy, could you repeat that? Um, I said, but it is also true, Mr. President, that you people took weeks to get off this idea that it was, act that it was some tape that somebody had made. Um, now, we also learned that for, to another network earlier, the president had declined to call it an act of terrorism. Now, it was on the cutting room floor, so that it was not out in public. And it was true that um, Susan Rice and others had, you know, so I did say, Listen, you know, but because I thought that was sort of Mitt Romney's point, and he got stuck on this one little rose garden detail, which I thought, well, the broader point is you people walked away from this and said, oh, it's just some tape. Um, the reaction, I, so I don't know why. I mean, I just, it was natural to me. And I will also tell you that everything that happens on that stage is so much less um, on the stage than it is on TV. And we all know that TV makes things bigger, but there, there was at one point, well, uh, right after it, somebody came out and said, oh, well, you should have seen our, our gen, uh, you should have seen our lines. So they have, you know, okay, women feel this was a good point, women don't feel this is a good, you know, so there's little things under the screen, and the men feel this way, and the men, so I said, what do you mean? They said, every time they charged the podium, they charged you at the podium, they, the women just, you know, went down, and so did the men, I said, who charged me at the podium? You know, and they said, oh, you know, and it came up, and then I said, honestly, that did not feel like they were charging me at the podium. This felt like two men, and I have to tell you, I have all sons, so it, it felt very familiar to me, the kind of stalking, <laughs> you know? And I, I thought, I've seen this in my living room. Um, so th there's like, th there's just this time um, when I, I, and they said, oh, they were so angry with each other, and I thought, well, I didn't, I mean, I got 
that the stakes were really high and that they were both uh, charged up and the adrenaline was running, but I didn't get this. I thought, you know, President Obama was gonna hit him. I said, really? Because it doesn't feel that way on stage. So it was very different. I would say in terms of the reaction, first of all, I, I do wanna tell you that there was a man on that stage who came up to, the first man to shake my hand when that debate was over was Mitt Romney and say thank you very much. So I, you know, he was as, as gracious as he, uh, you know, absolutely could have been on that night. I was, you know, I'm not aware of what's going on on Twitter, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, the only thing that really ever bothered me about it, because it, it a little bit comes with the territory, um, is the motivation. It, 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 I don't mind people saying she shouldn't have done that. That's not what the main matter. Okay, fine. That's you know, sure you get to. That's fine. You get to say that. Or I really thought she should have been better at saying to the president, "You guys, you know, spent two weeks blaming it on this tape, and you threw him in." You know, more fulsome explanation of the president, whatever. Or I loved it. You know, whatever it happened to be. What I didn't like was, you know, and she did that because she supports the president, or she did that because she, they, they don't know why I did. And I also think that this is, uh, and I did it because it, you know, I, as you can see, I can't, because it came up. And I said, no, because I, I specifically remembered the phrase, because by the way, we talked about it at the time. Um, but I, so I think the other thing that is wrong, and this is not on the internet, this is, uh, this is on politics, is that we have gotten into this motivation thing. You know, you're doing that because you hate children. You want old people to die. You want, wait a second, wait a second, argue, what happened? Argue policy. Don't argue motivation because you never know what's in another person's head. So don't assume that you know why somebody did something. So that's the only thing about it. Politics is, you know, ain't bean bag as they say. Um, I, I'd rather not be in the middle of it, but that's how that goes. Um, it was a privilege. I had so much fun. I would do it in a, you know, Jack second again. Um, but I didn't like the motivational part because I thought, you just don't know me. Jamie Cooley, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you. I'd like to, uh, before we close, I would like to remind you that tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, uh, all of our finalists, and uh, Candy, I hope that you will be there with us, yes, um, will talk about how they did what they did. It'll be what I would call talk, shop talk at its highest level. And I hope you'll come and we'll have some rolls and coffee for you at 8.30. That'll be on the top of the Taubman building, which is, well, you know where the, this way. <laughs> I'm a little disoriented here. I think that the president did it to me. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being here. Congratulations to all of the journalists. Candy, we loved having you. Thank you all very much. And we are adjourned. Thanks. Yes.